0: Take your Bibles and go to Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And before we stand, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, we approach your word with reverence, knowing that it is breathed out by the Holy Spirit. I ask that you would empower the preaching with the power of the Holy Spirit. And pray, Lord, that you would forgive me and cleanse my own heart, that you would do your work in my heart, conforming me to the image of your Son, and then as the word goes forth, God, that you would just work in each each life, each soul, that we would be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his death and resurrection. Thank you for the life that you have given us in him. And may his name be exalted, and may his name be glorified through all that is said and done here. Amen. Let's stand and read God's word together. We're going to begin reading in verse 22. The title of the message is Work for the Master. Work for the Master. And we're going to read verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, whatever you do, work. Verse 22, bondservants, servants, obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This information is easily online, but if you were to look it up, you would find that most people will give one third of their life to their jobs, to work. Over a lifetime, the average person will have spent 90,000 hours at work, assuming someone lives to be around the age of 80. While this might lead to many questions, one of the main questions that we should ask is, why do I work or why do we work? But time out. Because this passage is clearly about slaves and masters in the ancient world, right? So we can't ignore that. That's correct. This passage is about slavery and work. And so I think it's important for us to not only acknowledge that, but to address that because many in our modern world would immediately throw out objections to the fact that masters and slaves are addressed by the Apostle Paul. Paul here is addressing Christian households, which we talked about last week, which would have included domestic slaves. Now, household slaves in the Roman Empire would have had varying responsibilities, ranging from farming to tutoring children depending upon the economic level of a home, to managing basic household affairs. And when we think of slavery in the modern world, what we think of is the mid-Atlantic slave trade of the 19th century, which was a horrible thing. And we think of that the slave trade, but the reality that we need to acknowledge here is, is that it it did differ from slavery in the ancient world in varying ways. In fact, in the ancient world, people became slaves often due to war or because of economic circumstances. In fact, in the ancient world, half of the population in any given region were slaves. One distinction from that to the Mid-Atlantic slave trade is the Mid-Atlantic slave trade was largely driven by racism and by 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 evil hatred towards other people that bore the image of God that bear the image of God. And so while the slave trade and slavery in the Roman Empire differed, it is similar in that human beings owned and controlled other human beings, and let us say it again, that is evil. Additionally, slaves did not have any rights and often faced mistreatment, abuse, and all sorts of misery. It should be noted, though, that slavery existed in every culture. And hear me, not because it was an institution of God in creation, but because it was an evil rooted in the fall and human depravity. And so the reason Paul extensively addresses slaves and masters here in this passage is because most likely the church at Colossae had many members who were slaves, including one familiar to us, if we're familiar with our Bibles, Onesimus, who was a runaway slave owned by Philemon, to whom Paul had written a letter in the New Testament. And so that leads us to a question. And this is a question that a lot of liberal theologians and so-called Christians would immediately throw up against the Bible, or not even Christians, but people in the secular world will throw this against the Bible and say, well, why does the New Testament not prioritize the abolition of slavery? The answer, most simply, is this. Paul here is writing to instruct Christians how to live as believers under the lordship of Christ. He's instructing Christians how to live under every existing structure and in any given situation. That's what he's doing. But more broadly, let us be clear that the aim of of the gospel is not social reform. It is salvation. That is the aim of the gospel. Christ did not come into the world to reform society, start revolutions, but to save sinners. That's why Christ came into the world. And what the gospel does is that it plunges deeper than the fruit of sin. The fruit of sin being slavery or any other social evil. That's just the fruit of sin. The gospel goes to the root of sin. And the root problem in the world is not injustice and inequity. It is sin. It is sin that has corrupted the nature of every single person. Every human being is sinful, wretched, rotten, and wicked to the core. That's why society will never fix all of the evil that's in the world. That's why the government cannot pass enough laws to correct the evil that is in the world. Because we are rotten in our nature. And because of sin, every human institution and system is corrupted by sin. And so wherever you find human beings, you will have evil, and that is why our only hope is in a redeeming Savior, not in renewed systems. And for that reason, and this is getting right back to why Paul does what he does when he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the church in both mission and method, must be fully given to the preaching of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the gospel can, trans- can transform human nature and impart new life. And when the, gospel, when the gospel takes root in the soul of a person, bringing salvation, they are radically changed. They are radically changed. And one of the direct effects of that change is that we as believers become salt and light out in the world that we enter into. And that will often affect things in society. But the church's mission is not to fix society. The church's mission is to preach the gospel and instruct God's people on how they are to live under the lordship of Christ. Because human history is not moving to some kind of glorified democracy. Human history is moving towards the lordship of Jesus Christ over all of heaven and earth in the kingdom that is to come. And that lordship has begun in the heart of every believer. And that's why Paul doesn't spend time trying to piece by piece undo slavery. He just simply presents how the gospel transforms us and that'll do the rest of the work. And so though Paul doesn't outright condemn it, he doesn't condone it either. And what he says here by the Holy Spirit really is radical. I mean, just think about it. He addresses slaves directly he holds masters accountable for their behavior. He promotes the spiritual equality of believers in Christ, that we're all unified in him. And most importantly, he teaches that every Christian is a slave of Jesus Christ, who is our true master. And so now you know why slavery eventually collapsed in the Roman Empire. And why William Wilberforce picked up the mantle of the gospel and then used that as a demonstration as to why slavery is evil. And you can then see the effects of gospel salt and light in the world. So that brings us back to then to this other another question. Well, then, what application does this passage have today? Well, all scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable. And we need to acknowledge that, to make the man of God complete, equipped for every good week, uh, every good work. And so in our context today, we come back to my original question, why then do we work? The closest thing to the slave-master relationship would be the employee-employer or our life in the workplace, our daily responsibilities for the work we do. Now, I want to be careful, it's not apple for apples comparison. But because sin has tainted the way we see our roles and relationships, the truth here applies. And furthermore, the lordship of Christ, listen, it extends to everything from the home to the workplace and every relationship that we have in this life. So again, why do I work? Why do we work? What does the gospel have to say to this particular area of our life? Well, the key truth then that we want to put up on the screen is this. The gospel transforms the way we work and relate to others in our places of labor, whether we serve or supervise. And Paul demonstrates that here in his instructions to slaves and masters. This is how we then grid it upon our own lives. We see four things here, four things that help us see how the gospel transforms the way we work and the way we relate to one another in our places of labor, whether we serve or we supervise. Let's look at first the manner of our labor. The first thing we see in the text is the manner of our labor. Look at verse 22. Paul says, Slaves, bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And so one word summarizes the manner of our labor, and it would be this, obedience. See what he says? Slaves, obey in everything, those who are your earthly masters. And so obedience must be comprehensive of everything. In other words, we submit to those over us, and we do what they require so long as it is not contrary to the revealed will of God. That should be our posture as Christians. That was Paul's expectation of the slave to the master, a posture of obedience to do the will of that master. So As we think about then with our employment, the work that we have each day, whatever task or responsibilities that the slave here was given, he or she was commanded to do it. And think about, just think about what that would have included. All sorts of things that would have been undesirable. But the obedience required being comprehensive, was comprehensive no matter how trivial, how boring, or insignificant, or unpleasant, or even how challenging it might be. And the reason why we have to highlight that is because our sinful nature has a tendency to rebel and to be complaining or grumbling. As an example, when I was a student teacher years ago when I was going into education, we were, we were told to, one of the things we were told as student teachers was to avoid the teacher's lounge. And then the reason why is because what you'll find in there, all the complaints about the administration and all the things that every teacher hates about the school. And so, now that's a very broad generalization, I get it, but I remember our supervisor telling us that. And so I avoided the teacher's lounge, especially in student teaching. And I also tried to avoid conversations or situations that would make me insubordinate or disrespectful, be disrespectful toward those who had authority. And I think that in that spirit, again, not apple for apples here, but in that spirit is exactly what Paul is getting to that we are not to be marked by insubordination and disrespect and complaining and grumbling but we are to obey comprehensively but obedience is also characterized by sincerity of heart look at the text it says it says but with sincerity back up sorry not by way of eye service in everything those who are your earthly masters Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. Now, notice what Paul does here. He gives negative and positive qualities that must characterize obedience. Negatively, he states, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. In other words, we do not obey earthly masters or perform, do what is required, only when they're watching. That's what he's getting at. You don't just obey when they're watching. You obey even when they are not. As an example, again, just going to the world of teaching. Whenever a teacher is evaluated, oh, how teachers dread those evaluations, especially when they pop into your room unexpected. And do you know what the immediate response to that is? Of course, pull up something that's saved on your computer for just such a moment, and then basically do a dog and pony show pretending to be something that you're not because no day is actually like the day that you, when you are evaluated, no day really looks like that day, right? It is a performance and it's because there is a tendency only to do our best when someone is watching. It's like the kid in the gym, in gym class, physical education class, doing sit-ups. When the PE teacher has his back turned, what does he do? Well, some do. I won't claim it was me actually, but nevertheless, you just lie on the floor and wait till they are looking again. Then you start trying to do the push-ups. Right? So Paul here using the term people pleaser points to the superficiality and the hypocrisy of man pleasing. We either want to attract attention or avoid punishment or criticism. And what Paul's saying here is, is that let that not be the case. But positively. So that's the negative. The negative is doing things, do not do things just to be seen. But on the positive note, the slave is told to obey with sincerity of heart. The ethic here is that we as believers should want to do our best at whatever task or responsibility is because it's not just the earthly master that matters, but there are other eyes who are watching. That's why Paul, if you look again, he says obey in everything your earthly masters. So yes, in a certain level they matter, but when you then get to the next, the next phrase, when he says fearing the Lord, what is he doing there? He's showing that obedience must be conditioned by fearing the Lord. Yes, you obey your earthly masters, but when he brings in the second person the Lord God is infinitely more important and significant than the earthly master. The English doesn't capture this like the original language does. But when you look at the original language, you can see earthly master, Lord Jesus. You see what Paul's doing is he's building a contrast. And what he's saying is is that ultimately it's not the earthly master that matters. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that matters. And so, think of those eyes of our sovereign God who sees everything. Proverbs 5, verse 21 says this, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. Proverbs 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And so what Paul does is is he just reminds the church, reminds believers, reminds these people, That there are another set of eyes that are always watching our lives. And as God's redeemed people, our duty is to live in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a common theme in the scriptures. And what it's referring to is that we are to live, we are to work. Not to people please, just doing enough to get by. But we are to live in such a way that we are showing reverence and awe to God who has saved us. I mean, simply stated, what Paul is illustrating here is that all of life is worship because we are Christians wherever we go. And we need to grasp that. You do not get days off as a believer. You are always a Christian if you have embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're a Christian wife, a Christian mother, a Christian father, a Christian husband, a Christian worker, that is your identity. In fact, that is your most significant identity. All other identities bow to the identity that you have in Jesus Christ. And so the gospel then produces in us a desire to honor the Lord in how we live. Believer, you represent Him, you represent Christ, and you possess the good news. And the most important thing about you that people need to understand is that Christ is your Lord. Every person you work with closely should know that you're a Christian. Not just that you go to church, but every person you work with should know that you are a Christian and, 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 and again, not just because you go to church, but that you are a Christian because you are a sinner that has been saved by the grace of God, who worships Christ as Lord because he died for your sins, was buried, and rose again from the dead. The gospel should roll out of your mouth at certain points in your interactions with other people and in your daily life, like meeting somebody and saying, so, what do you think about the weather? I mean, that is exactly what it means for our, our lives to be hid in Christ. And so that is the most important, fundamental thing about you. And as you work and relate to others, your goal should be to honor and to please him. The one who saved you. Now that might sound like wow. So that, like we walk around, we be weird about the gospel. I have never, in my time working uh, in outside of ministry work, have ever found that it's weird to talk about the gospel. In fact, people are refreshed when they realize that your form of Christianity is not works-based, I'm better than everybody, but actually I'm a real wretch who's been saved by a real Christ who did something actually in history to save me, and he can change everybody. And so we want to please the Lord who saved us because he enables us to work for the master, and so our truth applied for the master, is what we have today, is that the gospel enables us to obey joyfully, do our best, and honor the Lord. That's what the gospel enables us to do. And that's what Paul's driving at in this, the manner of our labor. We obey joyfully, we do our best, and we honor the Lord because we seek to please him above all. And that pours over into our work and labor for other people. Now that leads us to a second observation. Not only do you see the manner of our labor, you see the mandate for our labor. Look at verse 23. So then Paul says, Whatever you do, work heartily. As for the Lord and not for men. Somewhat repetitive. Harkens back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, where he says, Whether it's in whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul moves from the manner of our labor to the mandate of our labor. This is a clear and remarkable command that is tethered to the lordship of Christ. And so the mandate of our labor is is that our labor should be inward fueled. Work with all your heart. And as we are inward-fueled, that means as the Spirit brings to bear the gospel truths in our hearts, then we will work heartily. It means that our work and labor will be heartfelt. That's what heartily means. It means that it will come from the soul, not just acts of mundane service. And as what we do comes from our soul, we will do it to the best of our ability. And as Christians, we will do it with contentment and joy, even when it's difficult. And so when he says, when he says, whatever you do, work heartily, that's inward fuel. It's arising from a soul that has been transformed by the gospel. But then notice that it's upward focused. The mandate is upward focused. Work as for the Lord. Three times in these two verses, Paul asserts Christ's lordship. Do your work with the understanding that you're not just doing this for humans but for Christ. Imagine how that fell on the heart of a slave in the ancient world. That we're doing this as unto the Lord. Imagine the comfort and encouragement and motivation that would have been drawn into the heart of a put, placed into the heart of a slave to realize that wow We are doing everything we do for the master who is in heaven. This is where Ephesians 6 is helpful. It's not on the screen, but you can go in your Bibles if you want to. And if you go to Ephesians 6, verse 5, listen to what Paul says here. Again, Paul wrote these prison letters to different churches. One to Colossians, another was to Ephesians. Here's what he says to Ephesians. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ." but by, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. See how that kind of opens up that idea of what it means to work heartily? Doing the will of God as unto the Lord. By doing what you do each day, you are doing the will of God for your life. This means that what you do matters. Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want to spiritualize work. Work is work, (laughs) and some people hyper-spiritualize work, right? I mean, God didn't call me to be a teacher. I just decided that I would be a teacher, and I think going beyond that, hyper-spiritualizes it, and that's dangerous on multiple levels. And I think mainly the reason we want to be careful with hyper-spiritualizing work is because work is not ultimate. There are more important realities. Your family and your church are two of them, far more important than your work. But that said, your work matters because it is for others and it is unto God. Now, some may be tempted to think that the only thing that matters is ministry and missionary work. That's absolutely false. And one of the things that the Reformation did was tear down that hierarchy. I mean, we didn't need the Reformation to do that because Paul clearly demonstrates it here. But over time, there became this mentality that what makes you really spiritual is if you become a priest, renounce everything in the physical world and become a monk somewhere. And so Luther and the Reformers... Absolutely, on the authority of God's word, just destroyed that. Listen to what William Tyndale said There is no better than another to please God. There's no work better than another to please God. To pour water, to wash dishes, to be a cobbler or an apostle, all is one. To wash dishes and to preach, all is one. As touching, though deed, each deed to please God. He's not saying that there's not variations, but his whole point is, is that because of Christ, the believer's desire is to please God, whether we're preaching in the pulpit or we're serving somewhere outside of the church. Listen to what Martin Luther writes. Of course, I love the way he writes it. He says, the work of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household task but that all works are measured before God by faith alone and that echoes what Paul all of life for the glory of God Every And again, it's not to suggest that what the church does is important, but what it means is is that each role, each gifting, each thing that God has given us has its own unique significance as we seek to live to please the Lord. And I'll tell you, here's another reason why I think it's important to say that. It would do well for many ministers to spend some time in another vocation outside of the church. If anything, to cultivate an appreciation for the lives of their congregations, and a heart for shepherding people graciously and realistically. I am grateful for the years that I've had in ministry, but I am equally grateful for the tent-making profession. I'm grateful for the years I've had in education as a teacher and even doing other things that I've had to do along the way. Because it enables me as a minister of the gospel to understand the dangers, the duties, and even the distractions that are out there in the world that all of us share together. It also gives an appreciation for the privilege it is to read God, read and study God's word and to minister to God's flock. But the, reality, but, but, but the fact here is is that what Paul is demonstrating Is that the mandate for our labor is to be upward focused, whatever it is that we are doing? And I want to add, that is we look, we think of young people graduating and we look at people looking at their futures. I, I, I tell young people all the time to, to give consideration to maybe God may be calling you to go into the ministry and to serve the church vocationally, professionally, and spiritually. Or maybe God has, God will have you to go and to be work in the in the world in some other vocation or some other profession. There's all sorts of options, but no matter what it is. Do it for the glory of God. What do you do? I think this text emphasizes that it matters. It matters because what you do, you are through what you do, you are loving others and bringing glory to the Savior. Listen, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all to make much of Jesus wherever it is that you go. Make much of him in such a way that you're able to influence others with your testimony of the gospel that has saved you. I love that song by Stephen Curtis Chapman who captures this and it came out years ago when my wife had lots of little ones running around in the house each day in her primary responsibility And in that, he just captures it. Whether you're changing diapers, cleaning up Cheerios, dressing kids for school, managing accounts, changing tires, teaching kids, caring for the sick, sitting in a math class, or better, an English class, reading The Hobbit, or you're on the mission field, or you're serving in ministry. Whatever you do, do it to the glory of the one who made you, Stephen Curtis Chapman writes. Because he made you to do every little thing that you do to bring a smile on his face, tell the story of his grace with every move you make and every little thing you do. That's why the mandate for labor is so important. Because it's for the master. And therefore, as we think about this then, the, 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 the application is that the gospel enables us to work, to serve others, and to please Christ as his witness. That's what the gospel enables us to do as we embrace this mandate. And if it wasn't the case, then here's what work would be about ourselves. It would be about building our kingdoms and about advancing our names, but the gospel flips it up, upside down, and it makes it all about Christ serving him to bring glory to his name and loving others, having an awareness of those that are around you. And their need for Christ and for truth and for love. But that brings us to a third observation. So we've looked at the mandate for our labor. We've looked at the manner of our labor. But then what Paul does is is he goes on with the measure of our labor. Look at verse 24. Again, because it's connected to verse 23, he says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing That from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And then verse 25, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. And so now Paul shows us that the mandate is driven by the measure of our labor. There is a judgment that is to come. And in light of that judgment, there is a joyful reward and there is a just retribution. So Paul emphasizes the lordship of Christ, reminding the slave that he or she will receive an inheritance as reward. Notice that he doesn't say payment. This is good. He doesn't say wages. He says an inheritance. Do you see the contrast? It began with the earthly master. You know, the guy who tells you what to do. And sometimes unjustly and unfairly. But then he he balances that by reminding them that you do what you do in the fear of the Lord, as unto the Lord, in obedience to the Lord. And this Lord that you serve, forget that earthly master. He's limited to this earthly realm. Your heavenly master is going to not just give you payment, he's giving you an inheritance. And you know why that would have been stunning For a slave to have heard that, slaves had no rights. Furthermore, they had no legal right in the Roman Empire to an inheritance. Do you see what the gospel does? The gospel takes sinner slaves and turns us into sons of the living God. Who receive an inheritance, not through our works or our effort or our performance, but through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Any slave or master sitting in that those in the Colossian church would have been, would have literally just been shell-shocked by that statement. That the master of heaven is given even the lowliest among those on earth the eternal inheritance that comes in salvation. It shows you the greatness of the gospel. And I'll tell you, another thing it does is it reminds us that we always need to be living our lives in the, in the glorious light of eternity. Because you know what? In this life, a slave may have not ha- didn't have anything. And, and, and slaves in this time experience all sorts of injustice. But in the kingdom to come, There will be no injustice, and there will be an an eternal inheritance for every believer. Now, what what would that reminder do for a person then working? It would motivate, I want to do everything I do for the glory of this wonderful Savior who has purchased an inheritance for me in heaven. Even in the days of slavery in the United States, these truths helped many African slaves and the horrors and abuses and evils that they experienced to be reminded of the eternal inheritance that is ours as believers in Christ. And notice what Paul swiftly does. He says, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance, and notice the emphatic nature of it. Not you hope to, you may, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And then Paul puts a period and says, you are serving the Lord Christ. Now, remember what he said in the beginning? Obey your earthly masters. Lord Christ, earthly masters. Not even comparable. And so as he asserts this, what he is reminding the, uh, the, the, the worker, the slave, is that Christ is sovereign and he is gracious in his saving work. Not just Lord, Lord Christ. Christ being his messianic title, that he indeed has purchased our salvation through his death on the cross. Paul is not mincing words, he is anchoring principles. So that they understand that your Lord is the saving Lord. Your Lord is the promised Messiah. Your Lord is the head of the church, and He will give you an, the, the reward because He is the sovereign Christ. Therefore, whatever situation a believer might find himself, he can rest, He can rest in Christ's sovereignty. Right now, there might be injustices. There are all sorts of evil. There may be difficult situations. I mean, for us, it probably goes as far as just saying there are difficult people to work with, and sometimes there are bosses that we just don't like or understand. Paul's point is, Christ is sovereign over all of that. But I'll tell you, even deeper than that, it is a reminder that our allegiance is to Christ. Christ. Because there will be times that we are expected to do what might be evil or to accept that which God does not, and we'll have to be prepared to lose it all for allegiance to Christ. Think about the pressures that are coming in our own culture, whereby there is a growing, there is a, a growing pressure for everyone to to affirm the LGBTQ agenda. And all the things that go in the, in the sexual revolution when it comes to sexuality. And we must be prepared to stand on truth and to be faithful to the Savior and to not bow to the whims of the culture even while we try to be grac- gracious and our witness to those who do not know Christ. But here's the deal. Our first allegiance is to Christ. And that's the emphasis here. We have to consciously be aware of the full scope of our salvation and remain faithful to Jesus. But then he says in verse 25, there's a just retribution. Notice what he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there's no partiality. With the reward, there's just retribution. Retribution, everyone, in essence what Paul's saying here is, is that whether you're a slave or you're a master, a worker, an employer, doesn't matter who you are, all of us are accountable to the Lord. There will be a judgment for the believer that will not re- determine our eternal salvation, but certainly the measure of rewards we receive, and there will be a judgment for the unbeliever Therefore, the slave and the master have a responsibility to live faithfully. And at the same time, this would have been a comfort to the believer knowing that there will be a day of justice. That's why the work of the church is not work of justice. It's gospel work, preaching Christ and instructing people in the word of God. There will be a day when justice will come and wrongs will be made right. And the one who does wrong, whether slave or master, will be paid back, Paul writes. Will experience the judgment of God. And there will be no partiality, he says. There are going to be no favorites. There are going to be no passes. It doesn't matter how popular someone is, how wealthy someone is. There will be just retribution. Wrong will be met with swift, firm, and clear justice. And therefore, we must seek to be faithful to Christ. Listen to what Peter says. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good, listen to this, and gentle, but also to the unjust. And immediately the response is, that's just not right. Yes, it is. And the reason it's right, he goes on to say, this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. God has a purpose in unjust suffering, one, to prepare us for the kingdom to come, but two, to bear witness to the power of the gospel to those who are watching. And that is our primary concern. You know, when you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, and you go to 1 Peter chapter 3, what is one of the primary concerns? that? Peter presents to the wife of an unbelieving husband that through her quiet spirit and submission, he might be saved. Eternal perspective. The problem right now is, is that we're the church is being assaulted with this emphasis on being consumed with making the here and now as perfect as we can. We can't do that. Instead, what we need to be focused on is eternity and the redemption of men's souls through the power of the gospel. So we can't address or amend every evil. And there will be difficult situations in life and sometimes difficult people. Our responsibility as believers is to be subjected to those over us and to endure mindfully of God and his divine truth. Our attitudes and perspective must be rooted in scripture, not in the culture. And so, as we work for the master, hear this, we serve our sovereign Christ. Reward and judgment belong to him. And the question we need to ask ourselves, are we trusting the Lord in all circumstances and situations? Maybe you are dealing with difficult people. Maybe you're in difficult circumstances. We must trust the Lord in each and every one of those. And that leads us to the last observation, the master of our labor. So, we've talked about the manner of our labor, the mandate of our labor. We've looked at the measure of our labor that will come in God's judgment. And then, lastly, Paul speaks of the master of our labor. Look at chapter 4, verse 1, quickly. He says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is probably why the slave trade eventually ended in the Roman Empire. But nevertheless, isn't it interesting? He says, masters must show fairness to their laborers on earth. Paul flipped slavery on its head. The master was required to show justice which would mean paying a just wage and caring for basic needs. Why, because we're believers. The master and the slave relationship is now united in Christ. And the treatment that then flows from the gospel presses what some have called the golden rule treat others as you would have be, as you would be treated but it places it upon those in authority serve those that are under you is in essence what's being said and nothing could be a better picture of the gospel and so as you draw that out anyone in authority particularly in employment must strive to be just and fair kind and caring putting away, as Paul will say, harshness and pride. In the the book called The The Gospel at Work, great book by um, Greg Gilbert and another author, they make two helpful statements about authority. Number one, authority is from God. Write that down and never forget it. Authority is from God. And then two, authority should serve and bless others. Authority should serve and bless others. That's it. That is, that is again, flipping all of the sinful tendencies in our heart upside down and transforming us. And what those, that book will go on to say is, is that God, we should be gospel-motivated and grace-empowered in our use of any authority. And so they must show fairness to their laborers on earth. And then lastly, they should submit to their Lord in heaven. Isn't that what he says? He says, knowing that you have a master in heaven who has been infinitely gracious to you. It's an incredible statement. In other words, what Paul's saying is you're all slaves because you all have one master and he is is infinitely glorious and gracious and that is the Lord Jesus Christ who is in heaven. He humbles the masters. He raises the slaves. He puts all of us in our place and he says Christ is above all of us because he purchased us with his own blood and he has placed us in the fellowship of the redeemed, the family of God. And that humbles all of us. And so for the master, the gospel enables us to relate to others with fairness and focus on Christ's lordship. The question today, perhaps, is this. Are you a believer? Is Christ your Lord? Have you been purchased by his blood do you live your life for his glory? And so the gospel enables us to relate to others with fairness and to focus on Christ's lordship. How can I serve? How can I bless? How can I love? How can I lead? And see how that pours over into every human relationship and institution. And so in conclusion, the gospel transforms the way we labor Whether we serve or we supervise, no matter any situation we're in. And so go back to the question I asked you in the beginning. Why do we work? We work for the glory of our master, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the good of others around us. May I say the eternal good of others around us. So today, as Christ your Lord and master, have you been saved Do you serve others and honor the Lord through what you do each day? Do you you see what you do each day in that light? And do you treat others with kindness and grace so that you might maintain a Christ-centered witness? May God help us to labor in this way as we work for our master each and every day that God gives us. And may we do so for the eternal good of others and for the glory of him who has saved us? Let's stand, Father. As we prepare to sing and even participate together in the Lord's Supper here in just a few moments, we pray that you would do your work in our heart through the Holy Spirit. God, what are there? Are, where are there areas in our life where we might need to evaluate our attitude and our actions? Where do we need to examine whether or not we are? devoting ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, or we're trying to exert our own rights. God, help us to be subject to those who are above us, to love and to serve faithfully. And God, help us to realize that everything in our life is meaningful because you've given to us as a means to worship you. And so wherever we need to, however we need to respond, help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing and worship in this invitation as well as for you. If there's some reason you need to come and pray this this morning.
1: There is a fountain filled. i